open up to Romans chapter 13. We're going to finish off Romans 13 this afternoon. And uh, as you're kind of getting settled there, um, by way of introduction, I, I want to uh, maybe remind you of a commercial maybe you've seen. Uh, it was a commercial that was aired initially during the Super Bowl. It's an Expedia commercial, so a travel company, and, uh, and you, you may be familiar with it. It kind of airs even right now um, on television in kind of a shorter form than it was aired in the Super Bowl, and it stars the actor Ewan McGregor. And in it, it's interesting, he begins the commercial by talking about how we love stuff. And he kind of walks through the entire commercial thinking about all the kind of stuff that we could buy as we live our lives, how we could accumulate more, bigger, better, the latest. And then he gets to the end of the commercial. By the way, the whole commercial is such a commentary on our culture. And he gets to the end of the commercial, and in his attempt to show us the worthlessness of stuff, he ends by saying this, do you think that any of us are going to get to the end of our lives and regret the things we didn't buy or, this is the only option, the places we didn't go. And every time I hear that commercial, I want to stand up and scream at my television, neither. On your deathbed, you are not going to be thinking about what you didn't buy or where you didn't go. But I'll tell you this, at the end of your life, you may regret how you chose to live. You may regret how you chose to spend your time. It's possible, listen, even as a Christian, to get to the end of your life. How many times have I heard of people on their deathbed who look back, even, even those who know they're about to go to glory, and say, I wish I would have done it differently. I wasted so much time, so much of my life given over to things that didn't matter, things that had no eternal significance. And, and in this section, Paul is wanting to remind us of what is of eternal significance. He's shifting from the previous section out of how we are to love others and God into why we are to love others and God. And I was reminded, listen, of, of 1 Corinthians that says, you know, out of faith, hope, and love, you want to know what the one thing that remains for all eternity is, the one thing that is lasting and eternal significance, it is this, love. So Paul says it matters so much that we get this into our hearts, into our heads, and begin to live it in our lives. And this is how he does this. Listen to what he says in verse 11 through 14. He says, beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul wants us to possess a biblical view of time to recognize that we have the potential to squander our time and, in essence, to squander our lives. And he's desperate that we not do that. He wants us to know that even as followers of Jesus Christ, it's possible to live in a way that God has not called us to live. I love what the theologian J.I. Packer says. He says this, the church is a hospital in which nobody is completely well and in which anybody can relapse at any time. The Apostle Paul or the Scriptures, can you say it like this, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Do you kind of get the picture there? It is possible, listen, it is very possible to start out well, to maintain even for a little while and to be doing well in the Lord and yet to fall miserably, to fail miserably, to not live this life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Wasting time is possible. Wasting our lives is possible. So here Paul tells us how we can live the way God has called us to live. And here's what you need to see in this passage, okay? If you didn't catch it already by us simply reading through it, there is a sense of urgency in this passage. It's intended to kind of jolt us, to shock us, as if somebody walked across the stage and slapped us in the face. Too soon? It's supposed to kind of shock us. And let me use this analogy. It's like an alarm clock that is now beginning to blare in our ears. The frequency at such a high pitch, we cannot ignore it. You can't keep hitting the snooze button. You need to pay attention. This is the kind of urgency that this text requires of us, and so we need to feel it as we jump into this and unpack it. You see, here's what God is, is doing. He's first calling His people to wake up. It's time to live for the Lord. It's time to wake up. And, and we get this instantly in this passage. He says, beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, this is so shocking because He's speaking to Christians. Again, he's reminding Christians that it's possible to actually fall asleep. It's possible to actually be asleep. And here he uses this as a metaphor. You see, sleep, this, this passage is chock full of metaphors that remind us of the time. It reminds us of morality, the way we're supposed to live. And here he tells us that, that this, this picture of sleep is something that is not physical primarily. It is spiritual for the believer. 
And the idea in the original language here of sleep is is some kind of a lazy, lethargic, non-aggressive, passive Christian life. Let me say that again. It is a lazy, lethargic, non-aggressive, passive kind of Christian life. And to Paul and to all of the Scriptures, this is an unacceptable way to view the Christian life. It is possible to fall asleep into this as Christians, into this lazy, lethargic, non-aggressive, passive form of Christianity. Now, how do we know if we are asleep? Well, some of you are asleep right now literally and, and spiritually, which is unacceptable because what is that? It's, it's 1.50. Wake up. How, seriously, how do you know if you're spiritually asleep? Well, well, for that, we have the entire context of Romans 12 through 13 to help us. In other words, let, let me frame it like this. Paul has been telling us in Romans 12 through 13 what it means to be spiritually awake. So all you have to do to determine whether or not you are spiritually asleep is to go back and see if those things that he's previously said are true of you or not. So let's just really quickly run through this, okay? This is going to be kind of a real quick way of assessing your life. Now, this is going to be too fast for you to write down, okay? So you just got to hang in there and just pay attention. Not doing these things is a sign that you you may be asleep spiritually. First is this. You're not responding in gratitude to the gospel and offering yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Secondly, you're conforming to this world. You're being squeezed back into the mold of this world to the humanistic, hedonistic, man-centered version or views of this world. Third, you think too highly of yourself. You're prideful. You live for you. Fourth, you don't see yourself as part of the body. You have isolated yourself from the family of God. You've excused yourself from the responsibility that God has given you to actively engage in the building up of the body of Christ. You become a consumer. Fifth, you're not using your gifts or that you're using them with wrong motives. Sixth, you're not showing genuine love, but selfishly loving yourself. Seventh, you're not loving what is good, but instead what is evil. Eight, you're not loving each other with brotherly affection. Nine, you're not outdoing one another in showing honor. Ten, you're not serving the Lord with zeal. Eleven, you're not finding your source of joy in God. Twelve, you're not patient. Thirteen, you're prayerless. Now, by the way, This is one of the first things that goes when we're falling asleep spiritually. We become prayerless. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Fourteen, you're not generous with your time or your money. You're not contributing to the needs of the saints. Fifteen, you have no compassion for others. Sixteen, you're not loving your enemies. Seventeen, you're being overcome with evil. Eighteen, you're not respecting authorities that God puts over you. Nineteen, you're harming other people with your sin, thinking only of yourselves. Twenty, you're not paying what you owe, the debt of love to all people, which is intended to help them flourish in Christ-likeness. Wow. Like, I read that. I don't know about you. I read that, and I'm, I feel co- conviction. 
This is a wake-up call. And it's a wake-up call for me as much as it is for you because our problem is this. We, we listen to this and we're like, we excuse ourselves by saying like, you know what, I've got like five of those things down pretty good. I'm, I must be doing okay. But you see, lacking in these areas is an indicator that we actually might be lulled to sleep. If so, if we're lulled to sleep... How did we get there, or how do we get there? The simple or broad answer is by not actively loving God and loving others. That's what he said in the previous section. That's the context of this passage. Broaden that a little bit, but by not actively fighting sin and temptation, what happens is this, we become passive, we become lazy, we become those lethargic, those non-aggressive kind of Christians. And you see, Paul has been appealing to us, remember all the way back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? He begins with his urgent appeal. So, so he started this section of how we live the Christian life with this sense of urgency. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. He's built in this sense of urgency to the Christian life. And so what happens is we fall asleep by becoming spiritually lazy, by having no urgency in the terms of, of the Christian life, Christian living, the things of God, by simply taking our foot off the gas pedal, by believing it's, it's not that important. We neglect the Word of God. We neglect time with God. We neglect the people of God. And what happens is this. We slowly and subtly begin to drift back into the world. We start again to be conformed to this world instead of transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, how does this happen? Here's how it happens. We are easily self-deceived. Easily self-deceived. We, we actually believe more often than not that we're doing better than we actually are. We're easily distracted, aren't we? We're so easily distracted by lesser things. Our, our minds and our lives are so quickly occupied by other things. We are consumed at times in our lives, myself included, with lesser things. We just keep hitting the snooze button. We keep hitting it over and over again. Or, listen, we hear the alarm going off but we train ourselves to sleep through the noise. But there are some ways I think that we need to pay attention to that are, that are lulling us to sleep in our culture. Let me just give you a handful of them. We're going to try and move through this quick. I'm going to give you some statistics here. Um, these, by the way, most of them are based on America, but I think it's fair to say that we follow the same patterns, trends, as America and culturally speaking, we're not that much different in a lot of ways. But, but again, going back to that Expedia commercial, we are a people obsessed with stuffed stuff. One of the things that uh, lulls us to sleep is affluence and consumerism. Now, I just want you to consider this. North America really is obsessed with stuff. According to one study, the average home has 300,000 items. 300,000. 
According to the same study, um, North America has a very small percentage of the, the world's population of children, roughly 3 to 4 percent, but we spend a 40 percent, excuse me, 40 percent of all toys are sold to North America. There are more TVs than people in the average home. You guys don't have to think about that very long, do you? That's not to mention tablets, computers, smartphones for viewing. In America, there are more shopping malls than there are high schools. And you'll like this one. 93% of high school girls say their favorite activity is shopping. Shocker. I think we're asleep, listen, secondly, because of addiction. Our culture is busy numbing themselves to death. There is an emptiness and an unhappiness, a purposelessness and a pain. And they're so sadly answered with drugs, with alcohol, with sexual immorality. There is a spike in addiction since the pandemic, by the way. I think that shouldn't be a shock to any of us here. But I want you to know this. Addiction was on the rise well before the pandemic ever came into play. And the root cause is the brokenness of the soul that cannot be fixed by some kind of substance and is instead screaming out for genuine salvation. And yet, listen, sadly, we understand the world deals with this, but sadly, many Christians are satiated by substances instead of being satiated by their Savior. They're leaving the fount of living water and returning to broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let me give you a third one. Again, this shouldn't be a surprise, but it needs to be said. So many Christians and so many in the world are lulled to sleep by pornography. Covenant Eyes, the, the software company, they give these statistics. They say that 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. And we know it's a problem in the world, but listen to this. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to viewing pornography at least once a month. One-eighth of all the online searches and one-fifth of every mobile search is for pornography. Pornography takes up one-third of the Internet's bandwidth. Let me give you one more that I think actually arguably is the most important one. We are lulled to sleep by entertainment. Aside from the amount of time, which is inordinate by, by every available statistic, the amount of time people spend on screens is ridiculous. And it's increasing. But aside from the amount of time, listen, it's the, the worldview that's being espoused that is actually the greater problem. And if you don't believe that there is an agenda, then all you got to do is look at the news this past week, Disney. Why do I, Disney just keeps coming up over and over, but it's so explicit, isn't it? This past week, if you're following the news, it is an explicit agenda to shape the minds not only of children, but every person who views the content, which is so sad. And, and, and you need to hear this, especially in today's day and age, entertainment is not neutral. Entertainment is essentially endless images 
that allow the mind to become passive. That's why we say that I just, I just need to relax. I'm just going to sit out on the couch and veg out, right? You know that language? You, you parent, kids, uh, maybe, maybe of my age, which, which I will... Do, do you remember your parents telling you when you were young, don't watch too much television, it's going to turn your brain to mush? It's true. It's actually true that, 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 the, that the time spent in front of the, the, the television, these endless images, actually turns our minds to pudding. But here's what you need to understand. The life of the mind, the emphasis on thinking and knowing and understanding is a deeply Christian virtue. Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. In other words, maybe you can kind of hear the application of, of this simple point. Put down the remote, put down the device, pick up your Bible, pick up a book. Yes. Aldous Huxley once noted that our appetite for distraction is nearly infinite. You see, so why don't we wake up? Again, we are self-deceived. We're easily convinced that it's not necessary, it isn't best, it's too much work, I'm too busy. And you can hear, you can hear the world singing you the lullaby. Yes, just go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep. That's, that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're telling us all the same thing. Christian, go to sleep. By slowly affirming what God condemns, a little sleep, a little slumber, and then poverty, ruin, destruction. Listen, that is true in the physical sense. It is true in the spiritual sense. By the way, this is why we so desperately need biblical community. This is, this is why this is so important. This is why small groups uh, during the week are so important. This is why Christian friendship is so vital because we're so easily lulled to sleep by the world. God in His grace has provided us with a community that is antithetical to the world, that, that is the great antithesis, and it fights against the world. It pulls us back out of the world, and it confronts us when we're becoming too much like the world. You see, this is part of the purpose of the family of God. That's why we gather here every Sunday, because we've been living out there in the world, becoming indoctrinated in part by the world, and we need to be indoctrinated by the Word of God and the people of God, building us up, strengthening us up, so that we can continue to fight the good fight of faith. Amen? Amen. This is what the Word of God teaches. And practically, here's why this should concern us. Because there are so many people, millions of people all around us who are walking in darkness. Okay, don't, don't miss this point. This is, this is arguably the very, listen, if, if you walk out of this sermon with anything, let it be this. The point that Paul is writing about here, why we love God, why we love one another, here's why, here's why. Ultimately for God's glory, but listen, God gets glory because this, Christians are now the light of the world. Jesus was the light of the world. He came into the darkness. But now, now in Christ, we have become the light of the world. And the danger is this, that we fall asleep and we hide our light under a basket. 
and we fail to fulfill the mission that God has placed us on. Millions of people walking around in darkness. Listen to what Paul says when he writes to the Corinthian church. I'll put it on the screen. And he deals with all of these problems in the church, but look at what he says right near the end in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Listen, why? Why? Look at this. This is so good. Underline this. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, he says. He says, you're so busy fighting each other, you're suing each other, you're boasting about your gifts, you're telling each other, I'm of so-and-so and I'm of so-and-so. I mean, you're divorcing one another, you're a complete mess, and you've forgotten that I have sent you on a mission to the world. There are people around you who don't know Jesus. Because this is true, listen, he calls the church, wake up, wake up. It is not time to fall asleep. It's time to live for the Lord. And if you wake up, here's the second point here, stay up. Stay up. It's time to look for the Lord. He goes on to say, in the second half of verse 11, let's just pick back up at the, the first. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Again, look at these metaphors that he uses to help us understand the importance of the time we have been given. It is not time to sleep, he says. It's daytime. There's no shift work here. It's time to wake up, to, to live in light of the time that we're in, to wake up and to stay up. Why? Because there's something we're looking for, something we're waiting for. One of the benefits, by the way, of living in a technological age, I'm, I'm, as much as you may think this is true, I'm not out on technology. Technology has a lot of good uses. I mean, think about it for a second. We've, we've all got these smart devices. We've all got these tablets. We live in an era where we can literally keep track of our time better than ever before. We have thousands of apps. We can set countless alarms and notifications and alerts to let us know about every appointment, every meeting, every event. We have the ability to track productivity in order to manage our time like, again, we've never been able to before. We have virtual assistants to save us time. We have built-in software to track screen time with detailed breakdowns of where we are viewing, what we are viewing, how we are viewing, what devices and apps we are using to view. We can see how much time we spend exercising and sleeping. We can know if we so choose how we are spending, wasting, or redeeming the time. But the big question in this passage is this, do we know the time? Do we know the time? He says, the hour, the hour has come. 
said, what time is it? Look, look, this is what time it is. Our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is a time marker, and it points to another time. The Bible here speaks to our salvation, the completion of our salvation. When the Bible talks about salvation, it, it does so in three different tenses, past tense, present tense, and future tense. So the Bible speaks of your, your past salvation with terms like justification, when you were made right with God. Your sins were forgiven. You were given the righteousness of Christ. You were made right with God. Positionally, you stand saved, past tense. But then we are saved in the sense that we are to be sanctified, growing in holiness and godliness, salvation working itself out in our daily lives. And one day we will be saved in the future where we will be glorified. We will be made perfect. And he's speaking here of the the whole picture of salvation, but primarily the end, the final salvation. The Christian, listen, has been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and we shall be saved one day from the very presence of sin. And so he points here mainly to the completion of our salvation, and that is the day of the Lord. It is the day when the Lord Jesus appears. He's coming on a cloud in blazing glory, and on that day, we will experience the finality of our salvation. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You see, the final day of our salvation is about us seeing Jesus and being made like Him. And in light of that day, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, we'll put it on the, the screen for you, in Matthew 24, 42, He says this, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. See, we live in this in-between time, though, this present evil age where we've been saved and we one day will be saved, and now He's calling us to live out our salvation in a particular kind of way. And, and here's what's so startling and something that we are to ever keep before us if we're ever to live faithfully in the Christian life. The time of our final salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Listen, the time that Jesus returns is nearer to us right this very moment than it was last night. Every day that passes, every moment that passes. Listen, we are one moment closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when the the day that we live in will come to an end. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6, he said this, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. He's speaking in moral terms here. So then, let us not sleep as others do, 
But let us keep awake and be sober. Let us live our lives for Jesus, looking for Jesus' return. What time is it? It's daytime. It's daytime, church. And yes, Jesus has broken into this present darkness, and he's acted in a decisive way through the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, inaugurating a new reign here and now spiritually that will one day be fully and finally consummated when he returns in bodily form. The day has dawned in the resurrection of Jesus And there's news to tell while it is still daytime. I love what Jesus says in John 9, verse 4. He says this, night is coming when no one can work. And listen, you want to know what you will regret at the end of your life? If you're a Christian, you want to know what you might regret? I didn't live like it was the day. I didn't work for Jesus while there was still time. I didn't let my light shine before others so that all may see my good works and give glory to my Father who's in heaven. I didn't live like that. Stay awake. How? Listen, this this is so simple. By not getting tired of looking for the Lord. Waiting, watching, praying, Preparing, living as if Jesus could return at any moment and that your greatest desire would be to be found faithful. And when you forget his returning, when you start living like Jesus isn't coming back, guess what? You start living like the world again. You're lulled back into slumber and sleep by the cares of the world, by the love of this world. You're like, what does it matter? Jesus isn't going to come. Jesus isn't coming in my lifetime. I'll make things right later. I'll deal with my sin later. I'll, I'll tell this person about the gospel later. You never know when Jesus will return. Live as if he could come at any moment. Besides, church, listen, this world's not our home. We're here but for a moment. Which is why God is calling his people to thirdly hurry up. Can you feel the urgency? Hurry up, he says. It's time to live like the Lord. The sanctification of the believer is is simply, listen, learning to live like Jesus. And he moves in, in 12 here from this metaphor of darkness and light into, um, and day and night into clothing, this metaphor of clothing. Look at what he says. He says, so then, Let us cast off, that's the clothing analogy, put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We're to wear appropriate clothes. This is the metaphor here, this clothing for acting properly. Paul is very fond of this metaphor. He loves this metaphor. He always is talking about about putting off and, and putting on. And there's two questions that we need to ask as we look at this. First, what are we wearing? And secondly, what are we doing? 
What are we wearing and what are we doing? We need to wear what is appropriate to the daytime. And in order to do that, we need to be casting off the works of darkness, the clothing of darkness. Again, this, this metaphor is about morality, it's about behavior, but it is also about our attitudes and our motivations. All throughout Scripture, the imagery of clothing is used to demonstrate morality, behavior, and this is a big one, listen, identity. What you wear or how you behave demonstrates who you are. It's kind of like this, let me use, use another analogy, it's kind of like a, a team uniform. Right? That's how you can tell um, who you are, by the uniform you're wearing. Maybe it's a military and a soldier, what side you're fighting for. And I'm not as familiar with that. I'm a little more familiar with sports analogies, so indulge me for a minute. It's kind of like, you know, the, the team uniform. And, and what happens in sports is that if you're traded or picked up on waivers from another team, you get a new uniform. And you're supposed to wear that team uniform. And, and, and the uniform is representative in many ways of you. So you put that uniform on, uniform on, and you're actually representing the team. You're representing the name, everything it says. So, you, so your behavior, there's a certain culture, certain rules and expectations that are demanded of you in order for you to properly represent the team. And what Paul is essentially telling us is this. You, you have been purchased from one team, and you have been placed on another team. You were on team. Satan, and you're now on team Jesus, okay? I know, it's cheesy, but follow it. So stick with your mind, okay? You're not, you were on team Satan. You lived in the domain of darkness. Your desires were for darkness. They were for sin, immorality, wickedness, evil. They, they were for love of self, not love of God. You worshiped the, the creation, not the creator. You rebelled against God. You wouldn't give thanks to Him as God or honor Him as God. You found something else to divert your worship towards. And what he's saying here is that, listen, we have now been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He's put, us, put on excuse me, new clothes on us. He's robed us with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now he says, start to act in accordance with who you actually are. And it, it makes no sense for you if you've been, you know, playing on a sports team, you've been traded or picked up, to now put on your old jersey and walk out onto the court as if that's somehow appropriate. You can't do that. And the urgency here is for believers to hurry up, to recognize what team you're on, and start playing for that team. Now, we had a, uh, again, indulge me just another moment. Um, I, I played a basketball in high school and volleyball in high school, and one of the things we did as a team before every game, was we would get into a huddle. You've seen this, right? Every team's got their cheer. Every team's got their corny, cheesy cheer. But it's important. It's important for morale. It's superstitious. I get it. I believe it helps you win. I'm just kidding. But the, listen, but what we would do on our team, I went to Pine Ridge. Woo, go Pumas. And uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, would, we would rally all of us in a circle and put our hands in the circle right, right before the game, and then we would have the biggest guy with the deepest voice, I was always really jealous, and he would yell out this phrase, what time is it? And we would yell, game time Pumas, boom. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it hyped us up. Listen, you, you want to know the... the Here's the value in something. It was like, 
It was the rally cry. It was the camaraderie. And Paul is like calling us together as a church, and he's saying, church, put your hands in. Guess what? What time is it? It's game time. It's game. We're not on the bench anymore. This is not practice. Take the training wheels off. Get in the game. It's time to get off the bench. It's time to start living as if the Lord is coming back. It's time to start looking like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling us to do. Hurry up. And you want to know why we need to hurry up, church? Listen, time is short. Time is short. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, what is happening? I had, I'll tell you, I had, I was picking up my daughter from youth and my son from youth on, uh, on Tuesday, and I was sitting in the car, and a couple of sweet little girls came up, and they saw me sitting there, and they like, roll down your window. So I rolled down my window, I'm like, okay, this is great. And, and, and they said, when's your birthday? I said, uh, <laughs> January 30th. And like, oh, great. I'm like, 1982. And they looked at me with their eyes wide, like, they like, they could, first of all, I said, I said, how, when do you think I was born? They said 20,000, which, uh, so, so I, I said, that means, I already understand, they were kind of hard time processing the time here. So I, I said, I, that, I said, I'm 40 years old. And this, the sweetest little, my favorite person in the youth group, aside from my own kids, said, wow, I, I thought you were born in the 90s. like, I love you. Where are your parents? I need to give them a big hug. <laughs> but listen, listen, there's, there's two realities that you need to face. I don't care how old you are today. Either Jesus is coming back or you're going to die and go to him. And you don't know on which day either of those things could happen. You don't know. And I'm not, that's not what I'm saying that as a scare tactic. This is the truth. So we say, hurry up. You don't got time to waste. The time is short. Hurry up and cast off the works of darkness. And you know what this is? What does it mean to cast off the works of darkness? Yeah, it, it means to, to leave behind the old ways of living that are, are not in accordance with the will of God and the Word of God. It is those sinful, wicked, evil ways of living. And, and here's, here, here's really what it means is this. It means repentance. You say, how do I do that? Christians mess this up all the time, and that's why they continue to, to live in sin and can't get out of the pit of sin. It's because they think, they think well, the answer is, is simply, I just, I just got to stop doing this. I got to keep trying harder. And listen, there's an element of truth to that, but, it, but it's preceded by something so important, and that's this word repentance. That's, it's the humility. It's the recognition of sin. You see it. And then here's what happens. Here's what repentance is a 180. So, so here's, you're walking towards your sin. You recognize your sin. You're stopped dead in your tracks, convicted of your sin. You recognize you've sinned against a holy God and you need forgiveness. And so what do you do? You don't start trying to fix yourself. You fall down on your knees and you say, God, I need you to forgive me. For I have sinned against you, and I need you to wash me with your loving mercy and grace. And then what happens is this. In confidence, because the Word of God is true, and God promises, listen, that if you confess your sins, if you confess your sins, listen, here's the promise of Scripture. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not some, all. 
And then you stand up in the confidence of who you are, robed in the righteousness of Christ, and you turn and you walk in a new direction. You walk towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's repentance. But it starts there where you fall on your face, you confess, and then you stand up and you turn. Here's what I'm trying to say. Repentance is not lip service. It's a lifestyle. It's an actual change in your life. When we repent, we first run to the cross. That's a mistake many Christians make. They don't run to the cross first. They simply try to change themselves. Run to the cross, and then you run from sin, and you run after Jesus. And that's why he says you put on. Put on. What does he say to put on? Do you notice the language here? Uh, it's clothing imagery again. The armor of light. You say, what, what is that? Well, well, I think it's very clear. Paul loves this armor language. Ephesians 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about the armor of God. He, he says, listen, and, and here's what you need to see. The point of armor is to cover all of yourself. It's to protect all of yourself. And so, so what does the armor of God entail? The helmet of salvation. By the way, all of this is the gospel. All of this is Jesus, okay? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the feet fitted with the readiness of peace. You see, every part of us is covered by the righteousness of Christ, and we put it on and we start walking in that righteousness. We live it out. Why does he use this armor language? Here's why. Because the Christian life is a battle. This is why you ought to hurry up and strap on the armor, church. You're in a battle. The enemy's not waiting for you to put on the armor. He's shooting his arrows all the time. He doesn't care if you got the armor on. It's like, good, don't put the armor. Stay asleep. I'll shoot you while you're sleeping. He doesn't fight fair. We have pressure without. We have pressure within to walk in the darkness. And so he says, walk properly as in the day. What we do reflects to whom we belong. It speaks to who we are. And here's what this looks like. What he does is he gives us three pairs here, okay? Three pairs of vices. These are supposed to be linked together. So let's just really quickly look at them. They don't need much explanation. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or revelry. I mean, partying it up, living for the world. Secondly, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. We're not living for pleasure. And he says, thirdly, not in quarreling and jealousy. Notice, by the way, that speaks most, a lot in many ways to the sins of the heart. Same with the sensuality. Each one of these pairs of sins demonstrates a selfish desire to seek one's own pleasure and not the glory of God. Whether it's substance abuse, sexual abuse, or social abuse. For the Christian, all are forbidden. These are the very things that, that he's telling us destroy ourselves, they destroy others, and they destroy community. See, you can't do these things. This is the exact opposite of loving God and loving others. You see that? This is loving you in, in the sinful sense. This is loving you, loving what you want, not caring what it costs you or others or the family of God. It's just all about you. 
all our sins that must be dealt with, listen, this is, real, this is why you've got to hurry up, radically, decisively, immediately, the goal of our sanctification is to grow up into maturity, to close the gap, the integrity gap between who we are and who we're supposed to be in Christ. Your goal is to hurry up and to continue to close that gap. And you, listen, you do that. Listen, there's so much grace here because I know the weight that we're feeling in this right now. I've, I get it. Someone's like, man, this is so heavy, it's so hard, and man, I'm feeling the urgency, but man, I've really messed my life up. I've done some stupid things. And God's saying, look, I, I get it, but, but forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to li- what lies ahead. God's grace covered. You've got to believe this, church. If you're going to continue to move forward with a sense of God's grace is greater than all your sins, Amen. You're not defined by who you were in your past life. You're defined by who Jesus is. And now you must live as he lived, righteously, honorably, running from sin, running towards righteousness. You say, how do I do this? Let me tell you this. You can't do that without the power of verse 14. And so one final point, and I promise it's short. Look up. It's time to look to the Lord. This final verse is so important because all attempts, every attempt to live like Paul is calling us to live, fighting against sleep and sin, without the power of verse 14, every attempt is empty apart from this verse. Because, listen, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, your condition is not of sleep, but primarily of death. Ephesians 2 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And and so the Bible says you do not need to be awakened, so to speak. You need to be resurrected. You need to be given new life, new desires. You need the Spirit of God not only to cleanse you, to forgive you. You need the Spirit of God to fill you and empower you to change the way you think, to change what you love, and thereby to change how you live. You need the light of the gospel to bring you out of darkness so that you can live in the light as He is in the light. There's a, a book that I, I want to commend to you. It's an old book. Um, it's, it's called uh, The Confessions. It's written by Augustine, St. Augustine. And he wrote it like 1,600 years ago. But I promise you it'll be worth your time. It's a Christian classic. I think every Christian should read it. But, it, but really, it's a, an autobiography is what it is. And, and Augustine, he's a famous church theologian. He's, he's, I mean, pivotal in how the church was formed and shaped and, and arguably one of the greatest theologians to ever live. And, but before he was a theologian, he, underst- he knew the gospel, but here's how he describes his life, paraphrasing. He lived his life in utter and total debauchery. I mean, just abject debauchery. He, he lived basically the way Paul says not to live right here. He lived for himself. He lived for the pleasures of this world. He was steeped in drunkenness and in sexual immorality. It, 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 it encapsulated his entire life. And he would even pray things like, God, save me from this, but not yet. And, and one day he was 
so wrecked by his sin and so unable to get himself out of this place of shame and guilt, he, he played um, Bible roulette, which I don't advise, okay? He's flopped it open, okay? That's not how you do devotions, okay? But he opened the, pa- he opened the Scripture, just really let it fall open, and guess which passage of Scripture it fell open to? Romans 13, 11 through 14. And he reads these words, Besides this, you know the time that the Lord has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He read that and God just smacked him broke him. And the light of the gospel shone into the depths of his heart, and he broke down before the Lord, and he confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. He repented, he believed, and on that day, he would tell you he was saved by the grace and mercy of God. You see, you cannot look like what you have not looked to. We are called to first and foremost put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In salvation, in conversion, He becomes our garment, our covering, our protection, our righteousness. And for some of you today, the reason why the Christian life, quote-unquote, has been a slug is because you've never actually put on the Lord Jesus Christ in conversion. For some of you, you're trying to jump past that piece of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and simply trying to become like Jesus, but you need to back the truck up a little bit, and here's what you need to do. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ by repenting and believing in the gospel. And when you do, He fills you with Himself, His Spirit. He empowers you to live in a way that you could never live apart from Him. And so maybe for you, you're sitting here today and you need to hear this. Today, today is the day. Today is the day of your salvation. And God is calling you now to bend the knee, to look and live. We have been Christians united to Christ. If you're in Christ already, listen, we've been united to Christ so that His resurrection life and ours are now joined. And now we need to put Him on so that we can conduct ourselves like the redeemed people we are. You see, if you're alive in Christ, you must, here's what Paul's calling us to do through this text, you must put on the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. You must wake up every day. You must stay up every day. You must hurry up every day. You must look up every day. You must, you say, how do I do this? You rehearse the gospel every time you step out of your bed. You wake up and you say, God, you have saved me. You are gracious towards me. The blood of Jesus cleanses all of my sin. I am alive in Christ Jesus. I am dead to sin and alive to righteousness. I will live under the lordship of Jesus Christ this day, for he is my Lord. Every day you declare, I am not my own, 
but I am bought at a price. So I will honor and glorify Him in my body. We make no provision for the flesh. I love this. Our natural sinful desires must come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are to be ruthless with our sin nature, not just stopping sinning, but not even putting ourselves in a position to sin, not even thinking about how we might gratify the sinful desires of our flesh. Church, listen, we are under His lordship, and God is calling His people to wake up, stay up, hurry up, and to look up over and over again. We live, listen, we live this life for the praise of His name, knowing that the day of our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. May our lips and may our lives declare it.